0: The tests and the training one must undergo to become a Navy SEAL are notoriously brutal. The Navy has reported that the SEAL training has an attrition rate between 73 and 75%. The fourth week of training is referred to as Hell Week, and one of the trainer's jobs is to weed people out that week. During the hell week, SEAL candidates sleep for about four hours per night and complete about 20 hours of grueling physical training per day. They are wet, they are cold, they are exhausted, and sometimes they are not allowed to eat. One person said, by day two, they are wiped. By day three, they cannot see straight. And By day four, they are falling asleep where they stand. If they want to quit, all they have to do is ring a bell at the center of the camp. And the trainers are yelling at them during this time, go ring the bell, just go do it. Ring the bell and you can go home and have a hot shower. They are yelling at them to quit, to give up, to ring the bell. Retired SEAL Admiral uh, Admiral Bill McRaven said, SEAL training really doesn't have a lot to do with how big and how strong and how fast you are. There's only one thing you have to do in SEAL training, and that's not quit. So the one thing that defines everybody that goes through SEAL training is that they didn't ring the bell But when a recruit is tempted to give up, the trainer's voice yelling at them to ring the bell is not the only voice they hear. When a recruit's tempted to give up, starts to go towards the bell, other soldiers start yelling at the recruit, don't give up, don't do it, don't ring the bell. And usually they give two reasons As they're exhorting them to not ring the bell, they usually give two reasons for that person to not give up, to not ring the bell. The first is, look how far you've come. Look how far you've made it. Look what you've gone through to get to this point. Don't throw that away. And the second reason is, remember your goal. Remember why you're doing this. Remember that when you get through this, you'll be able to put on the uniform. You will be a seal, Remember how far you've come. Remember your goal. We are studying the book of Hebrews, and our sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. We have seen that the letter of Hebrews was written by an author whose name we do not know, but who was familiar with the Christians to whom he was writing. He was writing to Jewish Christians who had probably grown up in Judaism, but had come to faith in Christ. And coming to faith in Christ had proven costly for these believers. And so the author of Hebrews wrote to them to encourage them, to strengthen them, to remind them of who Christ is and what he has done, and ultimately to exhort them to not quit, don't give up. He exhorted them to hold fast to Jesus, regardless of how hard it was, regardless of what it might cost them. We're going to see in our passage today that he exhorted them by reminding them of how far they had come and what they had endured up to that point and reminding them of their goal. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39, and I encourage you to follow along. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The phrase that helps us understand this passage is found in verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence. We are gonna consider five questions that this passage answers. The questions are, what was their confidence? How did he, the author, know they had this confidence? What was the risk of throwing away their confidence? What was the benefit of maintaining their confidence? And how were they to maintain their confidence? What we will find in the answers to these questions is of utmost importance for every Single one of us. First, what was their confidence? The author said, Don't throw away your confidence. What was this confidence that he referred to? What did he mean when he spoke of your confidence? It would be easy for this to be misunderstood in our culture. As Donna mentioned, we hear messages such as Believe in yourself. Follow your heart. You are good enough. But that is not the confidence that Hebrew Christians had. No, their confidence was not in themselves. Rather, it was in Jesus Christ and his gospel. They were confident that Jesus is who he says he is. They were confident that Jesus is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. Their confidence meant that they were bold in their faith, and they had assurance that Christ would ultimately bring them home. Friends, Jesus wants every single one of us to have confidence in him. In John 14:1, Jesus said, Believe in God, believe also in me. When Jesus calls us to believe in him, he is not calling us to intellectual assent. I mean, he's not calling us to merely say, oh, yes, Jesus is who he says he is. He died and rose. No, he's calling us to entrust ourselves to him. To believe in him is to put our lives in his hands. Imagine being at the top of of a skyscraper and seeing a tightrope from one end to another skyscraper and watching a tightrope walker walk back and forth and then walk back and forth with a wheelbarrow. And then the tightrope walker says, do you think that I can get you across? And you can say, yes, I believe that. But it's one thing to say, yes, I believe you can do that. And it's another thing altogether to get in the wheelbarrow. Jesus calls us to trust him, to believe in him in that way, to entrust ourselves to him, to be confident that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says. During his earthly ministry, Jesus's friend Lazarus died. And when this happened, he went to his town and spoke with his sisters before he raised Lazarus from the grave. In John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you Believe this. This is the hope of the gospel, that though we are sinners who deserve to die and spend eternity in hell, separated from a loving God, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners such as you and me. And he died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins, and he rose from the grave, conquering death, meaning everyone who repents of their sins and believe in Jesus though we die shall live forever with him in his glorious kingdom that is our hope that is the gospel do you believe this are you banking your life on it are you confident that what he has promised is far better than anything this world has to offer. Many Christians around the world and throughout the centuries have staked their life on this. One of the early church leaders was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp had been a disciple of the apostle John and was highly revered in the church. His martyrdom is one of the earliest accounts outside of scripture. When it was time for him to be put to death, he was brought before the pro-council before a large and hostile crowd. But Polycarp would not be intimidated and he refused to forsake Christ. The proconsul was insistent and said, take the oath and I shall release you. Curse Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him. And he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I shall throw you to them if you do not change your mind. Polycarp replied, call them. For repentance from the better to the worse is not permitted us. But it is noble to change from what is evil to what is righteous. And again he said to him, I shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beasts, unless you change your mind. Polycarp said, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. For you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the impious. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Polycarp was bold. He was bold to confess Christ in front of the proconsul and the hostile crowd facing his impending death. He was bold because he had assurance. He was bold because he was confident in the truth of Jesus Christ and the hope of glory. That is what confidence in Jesus looks like confidence in Jesus and the truth of the gospel. Of course, it is not just martyrs who demonstrate confidence in Jesus and the gospel. Christians all over the world show their confidence in him by sacrificially giving their time, money, and resources for the gospel. Some are willing to lose jobs, family, homes, and even their lives for the sake of Christ. When you are confident that everyone who believes in Jesus shall live and never die, it changes the way you hold on to things in this life. Indeed, it changes the way you live. This was the confidence the Hebrew Christians had. They were confident in Jesus Christ, the truth he proclaimed, and the promises he made. The second question is, how did the author of Hebrews know the Hebrew Christians had this confidence? The answer to this question is found in verses 32 through 34. Again, we read, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He said you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. How did they suffer? What struggle did they endure? Well, when they came to faith in Christ, they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. They did not hide their faith in Christ. They were public about their faith in Christ, and in turn, they were publicly insulted, mocked, ridiculed, and slandered. They suffered verbal abuse and discrimination. Sometimes they directly experienced these things, and sometimes they identified and partnered with those who were treated this way. For example, we read that they had compassion on those in prison. Being in prison then was different than being in prison now, here in our culture. Identifying with someone in prison back then could be costly, could could subject you to ridicule and mistreatment. And people in prison then didn't always have all their needs provided for, so they relied on people to come and help them and to to bring them supplies, clothes, food. So to have compassion on someone in prison was a big deal and was even risky, and they were willing to do so. Publicly coming to faith in Christ was costly for these Christians. Their confidence was demonstrated in even greater ways. Look again at verse 34. Verse 34, we read, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Can you imagine having your property plundered because of your faith in Christ? Can you imagine having your earthly possessions that you worked for unjustly taken from you? How hard would that be? But did you catch what he said? They didn't merely endure the plundering of their property, which by itself would take great faith. No, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They didn't accept it. They joyfully accepted it. Why? Because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. They didn't think they had a better possession. They didn't think, well, it's possible we'll get something better out of this. They knew. They were confident. They had a better possession, something far greater than any earthly possession that would last forever. They knew that that belonged to them in Jesus Christ. Because of their confidence in this, they could. Joyfully accept the plundering of their property. Brothers and sisters, this is confidence in Jesus and his gospel. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can lose earthly treasures. They can grow old. We can lose interest in them. They can be taken from us. Earthly treasures do not last, and they will always ultimately disappoint the Hebrew Christians had their property taken from them. When the rubber met the road, when their faith was tested, they believed in Jesus. They took him at his word. They staked their life on it. They believed that whatever they lost in this world would not compare what they stood to receive in Christ's kingdom for all Of eternity. So, how did the author of Hebrews know they possessed this confidence? Their confidence in Jesus and his gospel was evident by their boldness in publicly identifying with Jesus and fellow believers, even when it meant insults, ridicule, imprisonment, and the loss of property. Third question what was the risk of throwing away their confidence? In our passage, we see strong language and a clear warning regarding the danger of throwing away our confidence. Those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth ought to expect judgment apart from repentance. To make his point, the author contrasted the punishments under the Old Covenant with the judgment on those who ultimately reject the revelation of Jesus Christ. Under the Old Covenant person could be put to death by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He was probably referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 17 in the case of someone who blatantly rejects the Lord. Someone who blatantly rejected the Lord could be put to death by two or three wet witnesses. If that was the punishment under the old covenant, how much worse would the punishment be under the new covenant established by Jesus? Turning away from Christ by continuing in sin is tantamount to trampling him underfoot, profaning the blood that he shed by which we are sanctified, and outraging his spirit, the spirit of grace. In other words, to let go of Christ and continue in unrepentant sin is an egregious offense. The offense is severe. And thus the judgment is severe. What is the judgment? What is the punishment for someone who goes on sinning deliberately after coming to knowledge of the truth of the gospel? The judgment is described as a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. The Lord is slow to anger, but he is the righteous judge of all the earth. And the righteous judge of all the earth always renders right judgments. His punishments are always right, and they are always proportionate to the offense. His punishment is good and right. One of the things we need to understand is that the warnings in our passage regarding God's judgment did not originate with the author of Hebrews. It was not something new. It was not something that he added to the gospel message. It's not as though Jesus preached grace and the apostles came along and preached judgment. When you read through the Old Testament, you see many warnings regarding God's judgment, oftentimes referred to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was, was a day of judgment and salvation. Salvation for those who belong to the Lord and judgment upon those who do not. We also see this in the teachings of Jesus. Friends, teachings on God's judgment are hard. The doctrine of hell is uncomfortable for most of us. If we are honest, it is difficult for us to wrap our minds around And it seems easier to just not think about it. But if we love and follow Jesus, we can't avoid it. The reason we can't avoid it is because no one talked about hell more than Jesus. If you take all the passages in the Gospels where Jesus spoke about God's judgment, where Jesus spoke about hell, where Jesus spoke about eternal punishment, if you were to take all those passages and read through them together, it would not be hard for you to discern their meaning. It is not a big interpretive challenge. You can get what he's saying. A lot of people have employed creative interpretations To try to make Jesus say something that he didn't say, or to try to make it seem as though Jesus didn't actually mean what he clearly said. His teachings can be difficult to accept, but they're not hard to understand. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 48, he spoke of the final judgment. Where everyone will be separated into two groups, the sheep and the goats. Those who belong to him are those who do his will, those who believe in Jesus and walk with him. Not that you never sin, but those who belong to him, who do his will, will enter eternal life. But he also spoke of those who do not do his will, who do not know him, who do not ultimately trust in him. And here's how he concluded. This teaching. And these, meaning those who do not do his will, will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Jesus said everyone will be divided into two groups those who go into eternal life with him in his glorious kingdom, and those who go into eternal. There's no third option. There's no middle ground. Jesus spoke clearly of God's judgment, the reality of hell, and eternal punishment. We need to take these warnings seriously, not because if we sin, we will suddenly lose our salvation. The point is not to make us constantly doubt our salvation, but it is to help us recognize that if we turn away, if you turn away from believing and following Jesus, then the only thing left for you is a fearful expectation of judgment. I also think it is important for us to understand that the road to throwing away your confidence can be slow and subtle. Maybe you go long stretches between reading your Bible. Maybe gathering with the church family becomes a little less important. Maybe you're a little more reluctant to eagerly tell people you're a Christian, looking for those opportunities to share the gospel. Maybe money and possessions become a little more important to you. Maybe your heart has become more characterized by resentment and frustration than gratitude and joy. Maybe you are unwilling to forgive someone who has wronged you. If this describes you, then I urge you to repent before continuing down that road. Do not be counted among those who let go of Jesus Stop following him and go on deliberately sinning. The danger of throwing away your confidence in Jesus and his gospel is greater than you can imagine. Don't ignore God's warnings regarding his judgment. The warnings are there for us. The warnings are one of God's means of preserving us in the faith. The warnings are there to help us endure, to spur us on so that we will hold fast to Christ. Fourth question, what was the benefit of maintaining their confidence? In verse 35, we read, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. While the author wanted them to look back and remember how far they had come and how much they had endured, he also wanted them to look ahead to their goal, their prize, and their reward. While the consequences of letting go of Jesus, of abandoning confidence in the gospel, are severe, the benefits of holding fast, enduring are wonderful and glorious. Do not throw away your reward. Maintain your confidence and you will be rewarded. Jesus taught that those who remain faithful to him will be richly rewarded. In Luke chapter six, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. As followers of Jesus, we simply cannot live for earthly rewards. We cannot live for the acceptance of this world. It is so tempting to want to go along with the world so that the world will approve us so that the world will think we're good. But as followers of Jesus, our loyalty is to him. And we must be loyal to him even when we are rejected, even when we are reviled, even when, when, when it is costly. But Jesus promises that as we are faithful to him, as we are loyal to him, as we hold fast to him, we will be rewarded. And our reward in heaven, our inheritance in heaven with Christ in his kingdom will far surpass anything we sacrifice in this life. It's like what Paul said in Romans 818. I do not consider that the present sufferings are worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. And that was a man who suffered a great deal. Whatever we lose Whatever we give up, whatever we suffer, however we are treated, will not compare to the reward, to the glory of being with Christ forever in his kingdom. This life is short. Our time here on this earth in its present form is fleeting, it'll be gone. Eternity is a lot longer. And he promises that our rewards with him in his kingdom for all of eternity will far surpass anything this world has to offer. We must set our hearts on our reward in heaven. Fifth question, how were they to maintain their confidence? Instead of throwing away their confidence, they needed to maintain their confidence. And how were they to do so? They needed to hold on to their confidence by enduring, living by faith and not shrinking back. Enduring means you go through a hard struggle without giving up. We will endure hard struggles. At times, following Christ will be costly, but we are called to endure, to not give up, to not ring the bell. And you have brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage you to strengthen you, to tell you, don't give up. And that is one of the many reasons why it's so important to stay connected to the church body, to continually and regularly gather on the Lord's day and at other times. We need to stay connected to each other because we need to help each other endure when we face trials. We need to tell each other, keep going, don't give up. Remember how far you've come. Remember your reward. This is how we are to spur one another on. We need to endure when we face trials and hardships. We need to put one foot in front of the other and continue to follow and obey Jesus. As we will see next week, faith means having a strong conviction about things you cannot see. We are called to live by faith, to help us live by faith. The author of Hebrews writes about all these heroes of the faith who have gone before us. Next week, we begin chapter 11. We're going to spend three weeks in chapter 11, and chapter 11 is a wonderful and glorious chapter, a wonderful reminder of heroes of the faith who have gone before us, who have endured trials, who held fast, who walked with the Lord and are now with him. These next three weeks are going to be a wonderful encouragement for us, a wonderful encouragement to live by faith. We also need to not shrink back. We don't shrink back, meaning we don't give in to fear. We don't give in to sin. And we don't adopt the ways and values of the world. No, we do not shrink back. We live boldly for Jesus. If you are not a Christian, I urge you to believe in Jesus and to be saved. There will be a day of final judgment. And those who enter into eternal life into his kingdom are those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ. If you're not a Christian, do not wait another day. Believe in Christ. Be saved. Receive the forgiveness of your sins. Be reconciled to God the Father. Receive the promises that Christ has made to his people. Where are you placing your confidence? Are you placing confidence in yourself? Are you placing confidence in your ability to live a good life? Are you placing confidence in your ability to work hard? To succeed, to provide, to do what's good? Are you trusting in your goodness, your work ethic, your abilities, your brains, knowledge, your wisdom? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you placing your confidence in money? Do you believe that more money and better possessions are the key to a happy life? Do you think that if I just have a little bit more money, then my life will be good? Then I'll be free of stress. Then I'll be able to enjoy life are you putting your confidence in your retirement account and your savings and your ability to work hard and earn more money do you think money is what's going to satisfy you are you placing your confidence in another person are you counting on someone else to make you happy to make you whole provide what you need are you placing your confidence in someone else if you are placing your confidence in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ and his gospel, then your confidence is misplaced. He alone is worthy of our confidence, our trust, our faith. He will deliver on all his good promises. Anything or anyone else you place your confidence in will disappoint you, will let you down will not come through. Brothers and sisters, we need to be those who do not shrink back but boldly follow Jesus, maintaining our confidence in him. How does your life reflect confidence in Jesus? If someone were to observe you for a week, how would they know that you are placing your confidence in Jesus? Are you bold in your faith? Do you boldly talk about Jesus, not fearing what other people will think or how others will respond to the fact that you believe in Jesus and follow him? Do you boldly speak his name, boldly share the gospel, or do you shrink back from saying the name of Jesus, from declaring yourself to be one of his followers. Confidence in Christ looks like boldness in your faith. What about your possessions? We all have earthly possessions. The question is, how tightly do we hold on to them? Would you be devastated if you lost one or all of your earthly possessions? Is there anything you think that, if I lost this, that would be really, really hard. Or do you have confidence in him that you could joyfully accept losing your possessions? How tightly do you hold on to them? The tricky thing about money and possessions is that it tends to be the case that the more we get, the tighter we hold on. We need to be confident in Jesus and his promises so that we hold our stuff with an open hand. Are you demonstrating confidence in Jesus and how you steward your time, resources, energy, and money? Do you give generously of these things? Are you willing to give generously of your time, your resources, your energy, your money? Are you willing to give of these things, knowing that as you give of the generously of these things, your reward is in heaven? Confidence in Jesus looks like generously giving of what you have. It's not holding on tight, but being generous. How does your life reflect confidence in Jesus and his gospel? I hope we can all have the same mindset of Paul where we read in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, but whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i might gain christ do you count everything else as garbage compared The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is far better than anything this world has to offer. Brothers and sisters, may we be confident of this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself and you have revealed your will and you have revealed the gospel to us through your word. We pray that we will be those who believe. We pray that we will be those who are confident in Jesus and his gospel. We pray that we will stake our lives on it. We pray, Lord, that you will expose any areas in our lives where we are failing to demonstrate confidence in Christ. We pray you will grant us repentance so that we do not throw away our confidence but maintain confidence in him, enduring trials, living by faith, and not shrinking back. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.